here I am. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi there. On this Monday afternoon, how's everybody doing? Maybe Hope make everyone's a... doing great. Yes. Still wow. sunny, no rain. Still sunny and no rain. Good things. It's been a really busy day, though, in yeah. Ingle House. We've gone nonstop <laughs> since we woke up this morning. Yeah, it's oh, been busy, busy. Oops, sorry. Oopsie. Where am I? Oh, there I am. There, there you are, right there. There we go. <laughs> And um, so I'll try to do it this way. How about that? And I'll yeah. lean. I'll lean You're this good. way. We're both. We're good. Okay. So hey, um, yeah. So we opened up the registrations this morning for Israel 2024. The cruise at 7 a.m. The church sent out the email by 9:30. We had 60. My email went out mid morning. By 1:30, we had 122. It's crazy. I don't know. It's crazy. It's so crazy. that's why I sent out the additional note yes. to people. Just, you know, I don't want people to have said, yeah, we're going to do this. And yes. we'll, we'll sign up, you know, later this week or something. No. Because I don't think that's going to work. Even yeah. we have no many, that's gonna, no idea how many came in. But I, I am guessing we will very soon start a wait list. Yeah. And we will work with a celebrity to see if we can get more cabins. But. Um, I don't know about if we yeah. can or not. This was what they could give us, and 80 cabins, and so we said, okay. Right. And who would think we would fill up so fast? But anyway. Just really, it's 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 crazy. And I, I'm guessing, you know, there's, we feel it. I know you guys probably feel it just looking around in St. Andrew. Something is definitely happening. Maybe not all across the world. Maybe not even all across Plano. But something's happening in St. Andrew. And it's kind of amazing. And uh, we knew this would be a fantastic trip. It had been um, since 2011 that we went on a cruise that not only going to the Holy Land was going to take you to Egypt. Yeah. And that is really a lot of people have that on their bucket list after after Israel to get to see the pyramids and the Sphinx. And, and it's it really is kind of... Yeah, it's a good payoff. It's not one it, of those ones that's a crummy payoff when you get down there. You just can't it's a really... Good payoff, wow. So. Well, it's, they're so big. That's the thing. You see them in pictures. And then when you're standing outside of it and you're friends and you look like an ant, it's kind of wild. So, uh, yes, Yvonne, so sorry. We, we are going on a cruise in April of next year. Friday, April 5th is when the cruise departs from Athens, and it returns to Athens 10 days later. It goes to Israel for three days. We're going to get to use our regular Lior and Neil and Maddie and who's our other guy that we're coming with us this time? Neil, Lior, Maddie. Yes. And we'll have to come up, come okay. up with the fourth. We, I don't have the fourth We have a yet. couple people we've used once, only <laughs> once before, but... Um, so it's, it okay. was up to 160, and like we said, in just a few hours, it was at 122, and it possibly could be closed by now, but they're, yeah. they're going to do a wait list, and we do realize that some people will have to fall off, but things will happen between now and next April, but anyway. So, yeah, so Yvonne, I'm surprised that you aren't on the um, email list, email list yeah. for, for my classes, because I would think you would still be on there. So if you are interested at all, it's in April 2024, and send me an email, and I will send you the information back. Okay. Um, or and... you just put your email here in the in the comments, and I'll get it right off that if you're interested. Okay. But I have to write it down because once the com once I close this, the comments are all gone. Yeah. Anyway. 
Okay, so like, yeah, wow. Crazy times, crazy times. But we are here. We're here. To plunge back into the God yes. Gospel of Mark. We right? are. We are. Okay. And um, it's a great book. Yeah, really. It's, it's, it's really fun to take the time to kind of really, really go through it and pay attention to each little piece of it. It really is. It's it wonderful. Is. So, Yvonne, I just saw your... Your email, and um, we will make sure that yeah, as soon as class is Scott over, I can shoot something out to you. But um, anyway, we're so glad that you're all here today, and um, like we said, there's something, something's like in the air or in the water. That it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy, I know, but you know, I'm just saying it's it's this uh, amazing thing. The Holy Spirit's at work at St. Andrew. That's all I can tell you. We just keep seeing every week. We see week 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 after week. So week after week, it's amazing. It's a great place to be. The people are coming. Yep. So would y'all pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful um, to have the opportunity to come together like this online, but still as as this group of people. Some of us have been together for a long time this way, and we're just pray as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Mark that you will open our hearts and our minds to this scripture and help us to hear Mark well in his telling of the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alrighty, I'm gonna Okay, move so and and you you're, you're gonna go jot down Avon's email for me and I I'll am. get that out as soon as we finish up class. Okay, so let's see. We are in the second chapter of Mark. Last week we did the wonderful story where the man was lowered, you know, through the um the ceiling of, of a house by his friends. Yes, Patty? Sorry, I have a message. Lauren is very, very involved in this uh, planning of the trip with us. And she just sent me a message to make sure that I let people in the class know that Arda, who's the name of the um, company that's helping us do this tour, is shutting down registrations between 3 and 3.30 because they need to take an inventory and get an actual count. <laughs> they are coming in so fast that they want to make sure that they haven't overbooked the trip already. So that's it's a wonderful that problem is to have. And I, my Yvonne, goodness. What I'm going to do for you, dear, I am going to send you out. Uh, I'm going to send you a copy of something that Scott sent out to his group today that will give you a little Just make sure it's got the live link in it. I will make sure it has that because what I'm afraid of, if this is true and you really want to get information on it, you're going to probably have to get on yeah. board and not wait till after 4.15. And and even if we have a wait list, there are clearly going to be opportunities for people to get on. Um, not, not everybody who's registering right now will be able to go. And in addition, I'm very hopeful that Celebrity will come up with more cabins for us when they see, you know, what's happened here. And if not, we'll just, by goodness, we'll just schedule another cruise. How about that? A second one, <laughs> just like this one. So in any event, wow. All right. Well, thank you, Patty. Um, okay, so we are in the second chapter, and we did this story where the fellow is lowered through the ceiling where Jesus is in the home in Capernaum, and it's a big moment because it inter it kind of continues the, the two key themes here that Mark is presenting to us. One is this escalating understanding of who Jesus is. 
I mean, Jesus forgives the man's sins. Well, who can forgive sins but God, right? So it's a little signpost to, to who is Jesus, who is Jesus, who is Jesus. And then the other one is the escalating opposition by the Jewish leadership, scribes, Pharisees, priests, depending on who's, who's present, where, when. And so it is those two, the, the escalation of, of disclosing Jesus' real identity and the escalation of opposition to Jesus, that's really the driving themes here in Mark's story to this point. And in the world we're going to be today, it's going to be the same thing. So we'll try to use those two as a way to keep ourselves oriented to, to the good news that, um, that Mark has for us. So I, am, I found a couple of really, really good pictures and helpful pictures of Capernaum that I had never been, that I had never seen before. So I'm going to, let me open up my slides here. Okay, so again, this is the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is on that far northwestern shore, the white arrows pointing to it. That is Jesus' headquarters during his public ministry. It's where Peter lives. And Peter's not from there. He's from Bethsaida up on the northeastern shore. But that, that, that's the center of the action. Things keep coming back to Capernaum. So this first slide is a picture of Capernaum today. And I'll point out several structures. If you look in, so I'm imagining you facing your monitor as I am. On the lower left-hand corner, those are the remains, the ruins of homes in Capernaum. Right above them, that spaceship-like thing is a church built by the Franciscans over the site of Peter's house. And if you look across that, you can see the, the Sea of Galilee, okay? If you look to the right, that white structure is a synagogue. Now, this is a big synagogue. It dates to maybe three or four, four, three or 400 AD, but it is on the foundation of the synagogue that was there in Jesus' day. And if you go just a little bit up and to the left of that, that tall building is merely the administrative building for the site. Okay, so the, the really interesting picture for me, at least, is this next one. No, not this one. <laughs> but it's okay. It's just kind of showing you, you know, the houses were all flat-roofed. Um, many people um, had homes that where they could... Uh, maybe a second story, they could get up on the roof. The streets would, of course, lead down to the seashore, and they would, of course, have piers, you know, for the fishing vessels and that sort of thing, because fishing was a big thriving industry. So I brought you that. I like that little you picture. You like that one, Patty? Yeah. Well, that's so good. It's a very cute little picture. But this is the one I was referring to right here. This is a picture of the site at Capernaum before the spaceship was built. So you see where the white arrow is pointing to in that octagonal shaped, those octagonally shaped ruins. Is that pretty clear, Patty? Yes. Okay. You could see more how that was. Yes, because at yes. the, well, at the center of it is the site of Peter's house. 
But what happened was, as the first century went on, it became a place of worship. And so other homes were taken around it, and it became this octagonally shaped structure for meeting and for worship in the later first century. So at the very center of it is was the remains of Peter's house, but none of it really resembles, you know, the structure for houses. If you look at these ruins right here, you can see these are all just square, rectangular little structures for houses. But I just thought that was really cool. I don't I, I had never seen that photo of Capernaum before the starship was <laughs> built on top of Peter's house. Um, okay, so y'all just type in any questions you have any old time. And so we are going to start in this, we're in the second chapter of Matthew at the 23rd verse. That's what we stopped last week. Another really important story this escalation in disclosing who Jesus is and the escalation in the opposition to Jesus. Right? Okay? So, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. So, this is an interesting little translation thing here. The word Sabbath isn't actually in the Greek. The way it really begins is probably better expressed actually the King James, which had, and it came to pass, Jesus was going through the grain fields. Because it is a Sabbath story. Of course, it, it happens on the Sabbath. That's clear. But the Greek is probably more like, and it came to pass, um, because it, it, there's a certain gravitas to it. Right? It, it's not just... Ah, one Sabbath, and it came to pass. Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. So, believe it or not, I have for you a picture of wheat. <laughs> I mean, this is thrilling, isn't it? <laughs> okay, there we go. There's some wheat. Some of you may have a lot more knowledge about it. Wheat than I do. This is wheat, I think, in several different stages here. And I think you could pull the heads off there and, and I mean, pick it and eat it. I mean, this is basically the stuff that creates bread and everything else. So, you know, it, there's a lot of stuff in there that's good for you. Um, so, here's what's happening. Here's, here's what's happening in this moment. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields. And um, I guess the disciples are hungry. It is the Sabbath. And they are picking off the tops of this wheat and they're munching on them. When I was working on this, it reminded me of an ongoing story in Patty's family. Um, one day... Her sister Joan and her nephews, when they were little kids, Jordan and Justin were in the car. I think I have the story right, honey. And she said, and, and they said to her, well, we're hungry, we're hungry. And she said, all I have for you is Tic Tacs. 
Tic Tacs Make a Meal. Was that a Joni story? Yes, it was. Okay, yes, Tic Tacs Make a Meal. So that's been part of our family's stories ever since. So we sometimes say to ourselves, Tic Tacs Make a Meal. You hungry? Have a Tic Tac. The kids didn't fall for it at no. all. No. <laughs> but don't you think that's kind of how it like has to be with these? Yes. Was this weed? I mean, how much of that could you eat? How filling could it be? But the fact that they picked these heads of grain, oh my, my, it's verboten. Verse 24, the Pharisees said to him, that is Jesus, look, why are they, your disciples, doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Okay, so this is a really good lesson in the law of Moses. Okay, in the law of Moses, um, there it, it begins in Exodus 20 with 10 commandments, right? And one of those commandments is um, keep the Sabbath, which means you, you, you don't work on the Sabbath. And for the Jews, the Sabbath was sundown Friday to sun sundown on Saturday. Um, and so they weren't to work. Fine, great. So the obvious question is, well, what is work? Well, there's some obvious answers to that, but then it gets then it gets tougher. Okay, so clearly you're not supposed to harvest wheat on on the on the Sabbath. But what if you are walking through the wheat field and you're a little bit hungry and you just pluck off? You do the you do the plucking. You're not you're not reaping, you're plucking. And so you pluck the head off a, a stalk of wheat and you munch on it, is that a violation of the Sabbath prohibition about work? Further, what happens if you're walking along and you see the wheat lying on the ground? May you pick it up, blow the dust off, and munch on that wheat. Well, the answer is something like this. You, if you find it on the ground, cool, but you can't pluck it. Plucking is verboten. Reaping is for forbidden. Plucking is forbidden. All this is in the Mishnah, this, this elaboration of the law. And like we humans will tend to do, we take something sensible and we turn it into something kind of ridiculous. You can't reach over and pluck the head off a wane a grain pluck the head off of wheat and eat it if you're hungry on the sabbath and that is what the rabbis are taking jesus to task for all right is that clear patty yes all right so here's his answer have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days, and he tells the story. The story, I think, is from 1 Samuel 21. It's a pretty straightforward story. David, David is on the run from Saul. He goes to a place called Nob, N-O-B, runs into Abiathar. Nob is the place where priests, the priests are all sort of gathered there. And they're all nervous because they know Saul is chasing David and they don't want trouble brought down on him. And David said, while I'm here, my men are still out there, um, but they're hungry. We need bread. 
And the priests basically say, well, we don't have any bread. All we have is this consecrated bread for the tabernacle, and it's for God, and it's God's bread, and it's on the big bread table. And Well, David basically takes it and gives it to his men, right? Because they were hungry. So, verse 26, In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, David entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Nice, short, little Reader's Digest version of, of the story. So, instantly, you see, so, what, so what's Jesus doing here? What story is he feeding back to, to the Pharisees? It's a story about David the idealized king of Israel, the one from whose line the Messiah would come. So there's a connection there between Jesus and David and David and Jesus. You see, it's this escalating disclosure of who Jesus is. As if to say, come on, if David would go in and take whole loaves of bread from the priests and feed them to his men, <clears throat> I... I'm certainly going to take and allow my disciples to pull off the heads off stalks of grain and munch on them on the Sabbath. Jesus is already emerging in Mark as he uh, not really only the authoritative interpreter of God's law, but in many ways the giver of God's law. And we will see more and more of that going forward. He is the one who understands not what the letter of the law is, but what God's intention is. That when God said, when God established the Sabbath, it wasn't about keeping a hungry man from plucking the grain off the wheat, off a stalk of wheat. So, and he says to them this then, well, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is a gift from God for us, for our use. You might think it's all focused upon God, but see, God is the one who loves. So God gave us this gift called Sabbath. Which, which makes us rest. We don't want to rest, but it makes us rest. It was, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The, the Pharisees have it backwards. A lot of people get, get it backwards. The Sabbath is made for man, not man um, for the Sabbath. And then Jesus drops the big line in this story, in my view. So, he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, wow, that's big. That's capital letters. That's giant billboard. So, first of all, um, Son of Man. I don't know how much we've run into that in Mark's Gospel to this point. Um, don't think much. Let me just explain it. In Daniel 7... Um, in the midst of chaos and monsters who are devouring Israel, um, uh, God intervenes. Um, the books are opened and 
judgments read, and there is one like a son of man who steps forward to God on God's throne, step forward to God on God's throne, toward God, directionally toward God on God's throne, and is given dominion over the earth and the heavens and the rest of it. Okay? That Daniel 7 son of man is why Jesus most often refers to himself as the son of man. Because he is the one. Coming before the throne of God, being given dominion, rule, over the earth and the heavens. So it's, 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 and then he says, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So if you ask any Jew at this time, probably any Jew today, and you ask them who the Lord of the Sabbath is, who do you think they would say? Well, it's going to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course. And here Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So the instant reaction by the Pharisees, and I'm sure a lot of people, would be, why, who do you think you are? How can you be the Lord of the Sabbath? God is the Lord of the Sabbath. Praise God, blessed be he, the Holy One of Israel. How could you be the Lord of the Sabbath? And they would be confused and angry, and they would hear it as blasphemy or something close. They just have to. I mean, I get it, 2,000 years later. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So for the reader, you're getting this more and more disclosure about who Jesus is, and of course the Pharisees are in opposition to him. Right? Um, and that, that escalating opposition, I think, well, many scholars see it as Mark's way to prepare you for his death. How is it that the Son of Man, that the Son of God, that the Messiah, that God himself could suffer? Well, that is the story Mark is telling you. That yes, you're finding out more and more about who this Jesus really is, as alongside, they're exactly in parallel here, the opposition to Jesus that will take him all the way to um, a cross in Jerusalem. All right? Anything, anybody, anything, Patty? Glad to have you back. You know, it's great having the production team back in full today. <laughs> they haven't screwed up yet. Believe me, I wish I was here last week. <laughs> I haven't messed I anything avoid. up here yet. <laughs> Everything is great. So for those of us who are just joining us, we are going to just be right now turning to Mark um, chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. One. Another story. And you'll see these two, right? Disclosure and opposition. Side by side. Well, another time. Another story. Another time. Jesus went into the synagogue. Where? Capernaum. If you don't know, you can pretty much assume Capernaum. It's a good assumption to make, fair assumption. Um, and, you know, so let me use my pictures for a second here. I just love them. I love pictures of things. So there we go. Underneath that white structure there. Now, you know, the one that it's in two parts. You see how there's like a, there's like the, you can see the columns. 
that was the synagogue proper. And the um, uh, then there's this big open rectangular structure next to it, separated by a wall. That big rectangular structure was sort of like the, um, what? The rec center. Yes. The community center. They would have potlucks and things there. Yes. In a good Methodist way. Right? Right, Patty? Right. And so, so a lot of, oh. Scott, a lot of people that are on today have been there. Yeah. And so what we it. all have seen is what we see as the um, the right the right hand side, the part with the columns. That's the part that we have all yeah. walked right up to and can see the foundation. Because you could walk you could walk over. Stuff. We just never you know, you could you could spend more time there. Every time you go, you could spend more time everywhere. But the um, in the first century, at Jesus' day, that whole rec center portion wasn't there. So you only had a synagogue on the same foundation as the columned area. Mm-hmm. All right. And way down at the bottom of that, if you, again, you all might remember if you've, you've been there, it's very dark black, which you can easily see which was the foundation in Jesus' day. And as Scott likes to call it, which was the um, capital campaign. Yeah, they had a capital <laughs> campaign to raise the money to build the new synagogue in about 300 years after Jesus. Okay, so another time, for back to chapter 3, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, we don't know what has caused it, right? Was it an, was it an accident? Is it something that he has had since birth? And every single time you encounter one of these stories with someone with an infirmity like this, you need to remind yourself that for the ancients, including the Jews, people's first reaction to this man would be that he must have sinned against God for God to punish him in this way. That was the explanation. He must have. That, he must have. And so, so there's always this, um, it's, it, it's, a, it's the reason when the man is lowered through by his friends, what does Jesus first say to the man who's lying on the mat, lowered in? Your sins are forgiven. Because the, 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 the sins and the physical problem are bound together. Nowadays, it's just a medical issue. Not then, not then. So the man with the shriveled hand was there, right? Now, verse 2. Some of them were looking for a reason. These would be his opponents to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Why do you think that is? Hmm. He'd be breaking the law in there. Yeah. The law you, of Moses. Yeah, you can't even do that on a Sabbath. You know, if somebody needs to be healed, they can wait a day, right? So some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Verse 3. In the synagogue, this is happening, right? Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. So just picture a moment. They're in this. They're in this space. It's it's rectangular. It's got some columns that hold up a roof. It is their the most important meeting place they have. That's really all the word synagogue meant in Greek was a meeting place. Um, and and Jesus says to the man with the hand, stand up. 
right here is to stand up in front of everyone. And so Jesus then looks at whom? The them. I would put the them here right back with these them at the beginning of verse 2, where it says some of them were looking for ways to accuse Jesus. So now Jesus asks them, in a pointed fashion, I bet you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to forget or to kill. But they remained silent. Why do they stay silent? Don't the answers seem obvious? Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? That seems like an obvious answer. To save life or to kill? That seems like an obvious answer. They don't want to answer. Why are they silent? Because they know that Jesus is leading them down a path they do not want to walk. He looked around at them in anger. I bet he was angry. That they couldn't even answer their... They're so wrapped up in their own way of reading the law that they can't even listen to Jesus. They can't even answer these questions that a four-year-old could answer. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Jesus healed him right then on the spot in violation of the Sabbath law according to these Pharisees and the rest of them. Jesus is the authority. He is the law interpreter. He is the law giver. They don't even stop to ask, how did we get to the point where someone couldn't be healed on the Sabbath that they would have to like wait a day when you know as well as I if one of those Pharisees had slipped on rocks and fallen down and broken their leg and and blood was pouring out they would want every bit of attention poured out on them at the, on the Sabbath as possible right but they figure ah well this man can just wait. It's not an emergency. I mean, he's been like this for who knows how long. He can wait, he can wait until tomorrow. Ah, no wonder Jesus is angry and distressed at their stubborn hearts, you know? There's no reason to wait. There's no reason to wait to, to pour mercy out on another person. There's no reason to wait to be kind to somebody else. There's no reason to wait to heal a relationship. What are you waiting for? What are we waiting for? Gosh, when it comes to it when it comes to disputes, how often are we waiting for the other person to make the first step? When we as disciples of Christ should make the first step. The only thing that keeps us from making the first step when forgiveness needs to be passed around is, is pride. That's it. It's just pride. The root of all of all the vices. It's just pride. So, Jesus is, you know, again, you see more and more about who he is. 
and you see more and more about the opposition because now the Pharisees go out and what do they do? They begin to plot with the Herodians. These would be the upper class, middle and upper class people who are um, uh, comfortable with the Roman rule and the rest, how they might kill Jesus. So now the opposition is getting hotter and hotter because time after time, Jesus is showing their I wouldn't use the word hypocrisy. He is showing their hard-heartedness, their stubbornness, their unwillingness to, to, to see who Jesus is and, and hear him so that they could grasp, well, of course, if you have the power, Jesus, to heal this man, to do it right now. I know it's Saturday morning. Do it right now. Of course, that would please God. That would please God because, well, you know, Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves us. We don't serve the Sabbath. Okay? Anybody got anything out there? Okay. Well, I'm going to press right on. All right. So just think of all the things we've seen. The, the exorcisms, the confrontation with the demons, the, the healings, healing Simon's mother, Peter's mother-in-law. I love that little story. The, um, uh, the man on the mat, the shriveled hand. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We've been told a couple of times that Jesus has gone around Galilee doing wondrous things. And remember, those wondrous things they aren't really even signs to who Jesus is. They are enactments of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus says at the beginning of Mark's gospel, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And in the kingdom of God, there are no shriveled hands. There are no men lying on mats unable to walk. So, not surprisingly, he is attracting a crowd. So, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. Exactly where he's going. Probably not just the seashore in Capernaum. He's probably going somewhere up or down that northwestern shore. Let me just... As long as I have maps, I use maps. That whole northwestern shore there, Capernaum, Tabga, all up in there. He's somewhere up in there. And of course the crowds are following him. You can imagine. These are not people who can go anywhere for real help with ailments and the rest of it. Then there is these amazing things that the man himself does. Remember, then they're amazed at his teachings. Amazing is such a popular word with Mark. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea. That is um, the southern part. I have a map here for this. Of course I do. So there we go. Judea down in the south, 
that's where Jerusalem is, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, further south, the regions across the Jordan River, that, that's, those are Gentile territories, way up north where Lebanon is, on a map on the Mediterranean coast, northwest of Galilee, that's Tyre and Sidon, also Gentile territory. So I think it's fair to say that these crowds coming to him are Jews with a mixing in of Gentiles as well. Right? Because really, in the end, it's about the whole world. It's about the whole world. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, and said, all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's family. And now that's coming to fruition. And Jews and Gentiles alike are flocking to Jesus. In the Old Testament prophets, what does it talk about? All the nations flocking to Mount Zion. Right? So so I think that is that is what Mark wants us to see. Verse 9. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Now, one thing you could do in these areas is to get in a small boat and just kind of push yourself away from the shore for a while. And and you could really still address a, a, a crowd even if you were 10, 15 yards out into the water because there are a lot of natural amphitheaters in in Galilee. The, the hillsides are all there, and they're very rocky, very rocky. So they will reflect, they would reflect sound really well. So um, he, want, he wants a small boat. He needs to keep the crowd from crowding him too much, right? I understand that. Verse 10, for he had healed many, healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Of course they were. So many of them desperate people who have been without hope. And now Jesus is there. He's the embodiment of hope. He's, he's healing people of these diseases and infirmities and injuries and the rest of it. He is bringing the kingdom of God to each one of them. To each one of them. And verse 11, whenever the impure spirits saw him, the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before Jesus and they crowded, you are the son of God, right? The, 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 as we've had all the way through Mark to this point, the evil spirits, demons, whatever you want to call them, they, they function in two ways. One, they demonstrate Jesus' authority because even they have to obey him. And the second thing is, that they know who Jesus is. So in terms of this escalating disclosure of who Jesus is, even the demons have their part to play. You are the son of God, they say. And then look at what he does. He speaks to them. And he says to them, he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. These are not, isn't that fascinating? In my classes, we often have long discussions 
of angels and much shorter discussions of demons because or evil spirits, whoever you want to call them, because everybody wants to believe in angels and nobody really wants to believe in demons. And it's kind of cheating to do that. In the Bible, there is an order of created beings. They're, you know, not human, not divine, but spiritual beings. And some, most maybe, I hope, have chosen to work for God and for God's purposes, and we call them angels. But then there are some of these spiritual beings who work against God and against God's purposes. That's what they choose to do with the will that God has given them. And we call them demons or evil spirits. And that's really the question put to everybody. Not just the angels and the demons. The question put to all of us is, are you going to work for God and for God's purposes or are you going to oppose God and oppose God's purposes? It's a fundamental question in life that every person has to answer. And so many people think they don't have to answer. They can just walk around all day and just be kind of spiritual. Finding something that fits, something that suits them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading another article in the paper today. It was about a spiritual awakening of, you know, young adults in America. Well, at this point, according to the article I read, they're all just wandering around in a spiritual prairie of their own imagination, finding something that they kind of feel like might work for them. Well, truth is, you're either for God or you're not. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. So, even, even these evil spirits, Jesus orders not to talk about them. Because as the, as the disclosures about Jesus escalate, and you and I see more and more clearly in Mark's gospel how who Jesus is, he's trying to keep enough speed on this. Patty's handing me a note. Oh, my word. Okay. Well, right now, um, I guess the Israel cruise, we reached 160. We've over, we're actually over 160, and that's why I'm going to leave and, you And are you going to call Sarah and, and have her just make sure that they're taking them, but keeping them on, on a wait list? You're going to start doing that. Unfortunately, there's a few, about nine individuals wrote down that they were double occupancy, but didn't put their roommate, and we may have already overbooked. So I may have to Okay. All righty. Good problem to have. I guess it one. is. <laughs> oh, wow. So there we go. So, wow. I'll have to be on the phone with Arda tomorrow and see if, um, about getting more cabins from Celebrity. Okay. Whew, that's all just so mind blowing to me. How could this be? All right. So, whoa. Any thoughts or questions, everybody? Oh, all right. So now what I want to talk about are disciples, the 12. In my NIV, the one I'm looking at right here, it says Jesus appoints the 12. Okay? So let's just, let's just read through it and we'll talk about it. Verse 13, Now Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. 
Now, I have to tell you, I've been there. I've been to Israel six times. I've been to Galilee six times. They, they don't really have mountainsides around the Sea of Galilee. They have hillsides. They're kind of steep and they're kind of rocky and they're very noticeable and they affect the weather and all the rest of it. But really, I know what a mountain is. <laughs> so why, why this mountain stuff? He went up on a mountainside. What could be the reason Mark writes it that way? Does Mark not understand? Does nobody understand that these are really... I mean, there are mountains. There's, there's a, like a 9,000-foot peak on the other side of the Jordan River. Not, there's Mount Tabor. That, that's a pretty mountain-looking place. But not right around the Sea of Galilee. So I think, most people think, it is to help us make the connection between Jesus and Moses. Um, the mountainside here and Mount Sinai. Um, Jesus being the giver of the law. Jesus teaching with God's authority. Even in a way that transcends Moses. But that mountain helps to make that connection for us. That's probably why it became known as the Sermon on the Mount. Because that's how Matthew wrote it. You know, on a mount, Jesus went took his disciples up and taught them. So here Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him, right, those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So, he's going to take twelve and they will be the inner circle. Because disciple is just a word that means um, like apprentice or student. Um, but in the larger group of people who would see themselves as disciples of Jesus, there are the capital T, 12. And they will preach. They will be bringers of the good news which is actually, you know, that's why they will become apostles. Apostles, the word apostle means one who is sent forth, sent out. That's what apostle means. So they will become apostles. Right now they're still learning. So they will, he will, Jesus will send them out to preach and to drive out demons, to demonstrate that Jesus' authority over the demons is absolute. He's king not only of the world that we can see, but of the world we cannot see. That's the idea, I think. So, he appointed 12. Now, why 12? Well, just pause for a second about how to, how to put this. When Moses, when God leads Moses and the Israelites who had fled Egypt to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up the mountain. He comes down with the law. It is that law that really constitutes the nation of Israel. Takes the tribes and constitutes them into this nation who is told quite specifically how they are to live with one another and live with God. And in this nation of Israel, there are 12 tribes because Jacob had 12 sons. 
and the twelveness of it is preserved. Even after the story of Joseph, and even though the Levites get land, there are twelve. When they settle in the promised land, there are twelve tribes. So now what is Jesus doing? Why does he count out twelve? He calls twelve men up to him. It is because he is forming a new Israel around himself of the twelve disciples slash twelve apostles they will become. Um, and he will be leading them on a new exodus. Leading Israel on a new exodus. Not, no longer freedom from bondage to Pharaoh, but freedom from bondage to to sin and death. Hence, think about the Last Supper. It will be Jesus' blood that is shed. He will be the lamb. It is Jesus' body that will be broken, not the lamb in the, in the Passover meal. It will be Jesus. And, and in that, um, our bondage to sin and hence death is broken, and we are reconciled to God. So that's who the twelve are. They, are, they, they represent a new Israel. Okay? And there are, then we get the names of the twelve in Mark. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So let's take a look Okay, here's Peter. I should have written Simon up there. Okay, so his given name at his birth is Simon. We know him as Peter, which is Petrus in Greek, which means rock, because in Aramaic, Jesus calls him Cephas. I, should, I left the S off. Cephas has an S, S, S on the end. Cephas. So Simon, Peter, Petrus, Cephas are all the same name. And that's why we call him Simon sometimes. Eh, not so much. But we'll call him Peter or often we'll call him Simon Peter. So Simon's his given name at birth. Peter is this name, rock, given to him by Jesus. Okay? So the first name in the list is Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name, I had to look this one up for pronunciation, and it's pretty much what it looks like, Boernages, which means sons of thunder. Okay, perhaps they were volatile, these two. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Remember back at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, Jesus is going up the seashore. He sees Peter and Andrew first, Simon and Andrew first, and he tells them to drop their nets, right? He says, come, follow me, and they do. And then he goes up a little further, and who does he run into? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He says to them, follow me, and they do. Boom, just like that. All four of those men, Simon, Andrew, James and John, these two, James and John, being the sons of Zebedee. Why do we talk about them being the sons of Zebedee? Because there aren't many names in that world. 
and a way to tell the various Jameses and Johns and others apart is to use, um, to call him son of so-and-so. It's like, who is it like? Okay, when Jesus is taken before the crowds on Friday of his crucifixion, and the crowds are asked, do you want Barabbas or Jesus to be released? Barabbas is Bar-Abbas. Bar means son of, son of a boss. He is actually, his name is Abbas, Barabbas, bar son of Abbas. Um, uh, Simon Bar-Jonah was a big figure in Israel history. Simon, son of Jonah. So if you look around your Bible, you'll, you'll see that kind of thing there from time to time. In this case, we know them as James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, another son of Zebedee, the sons of th thunder. And then in verse 18, we get Andrew, and we get Philip, and we get Bartholomew, and we get Matthew, and we get Thomas, and we get another James. This James is the son of Alphaeus, so we can tell him from the son of Zebedee. And neither of them is Jesus' half-brother named James, who will become a leader of the community in Jerusalem. Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, so we have another Simon. So we got to give him another little something. And let me explain what Zealot is. Okay, Zealot. I mean, we use the word today. We talk about people having a lot of zeal. Um, I always thought N.T. Wright really got this very much right when he said, the word Zealot always has a knife in the hand. Whenever you come across the word zealot, there's a knife in the hand. These were the ones, the zealots in Israel at this time were the ones who wanted to take open war to the Romans. They were ready to pick up the spears, knives, shields, and the rest and, and confront the Romans in open war. That's who the zealots were, and that's who this man seems to be. Okay, Simon the Zealot. And who's the last one? Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Mark says so simply. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, there is a similar list, very, very similar list in Luke, and a very, very similar list in Matthew, and there's a similar list in Acts. But they're not completely the same, and scholars have twisted themselves all up um, arguing about, well, are the, is, the, is, is, is it exactly the same 12 people that all the gospel writers have in mind and it's simply differences in names that they know them by? Or is it actually a little bit of disagreement among the gospel writers, like when you get to the fringes of the 12, exactly who it is? I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. <laughs> doesn't matter to me. What, the, what matters is that they constitute the capital T-12. They constitute the capital T-12. Um, and uh, if I were to pick a list, I'd pick Mark's list, simply because Mark is the oldest of the Gospels. And the basis for it, the, essential, the essentialness of it, is probably is Peter's eyewitness testimony. I'm sorry. But um, that's okay, Patty. Don't forget to take your tag of <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I, I just don't get worked up about it. You know, you can find a lot of ink spilled 
on that question, but the key is to grasp that there are 12 and to grasp why the capital T, 12, the new Israel. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and so it must be the 12, which helps you understand why when Judas does betray Jesus, he must be replaced. And so the book of Acts opens with what? With the replacement, well, after they, we have some Jesus stuff at the beginning, but then after he departs, then they have to turn their attention to replacing Judas, and they do it by drawing lots. And a man named Matthias becomes the number 12. Why do they have to replace him? Because there must be 12. Capital T, 12. Okay? How you doing over there, Patty? It's quite the afternoon. Her mind is blown. She's standing up with me. Her eyes are about six inches wide. The registrations were coming in so fast and furious that people were getting emails saying that you're confirmed. And now I'm just trying to, there's a number of people. But they will have them all logged in by time. Arda can send out yes. an email saying that, yes, okay, absolutely. we have a time listing for I'm everyone, and that's what it'll be. That, um, just didn't put who their roommate were. Some people where there was double occupancy, both sent in a registration. Okay. So that counts as two rooms, not one, right? So, so we may. So they've just shut down everything and said the trip is full for now. Well. Well, they sort this out. Well, we sort this out. It's a well, great problem. It's a great problem. Well, I was afraid crazy. that we would like bring down their website or something. <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> sorry. Sorry I had to leave for a minute. but um, Scott, why do you think or do we know why Jesus renamed several of the disciples? For example, Simon to Peter. Well, he gives them the name Peter because he says, you know, in this big, big moment... Um, he says, Peter, you are the rock, you know, on which I will build my church. And so the traditional understanding is that Peter is singled out as the closest disciple to Jesus and, and affirms Jesus, I mean, affirms Peter as the rock um, for the church. And that's very much looked back to by the entire church tradition in the West. Remember, for 1,500 years, the Pope is the leader of all the Christians in the West, which is most of the Christians. And what's the name of the Basilica in Rome? St. Peter's. Who's buried underneath the altar in St. Peter's? Peter. Peter is the rock on which, you will, which I will build my church, Jesus says. So it's, it's, it's a way, I think, of singling out Jesus. Now, I I'm not aware of any others that he renames. It's just a matter of um, because we go from Aramaic to Hebrew to Greek to English um, with some of these names and stuff and, and how are people remembered by what sort of name, the, the names can get a little bit confusing. But Peter's name actually of means something. Peter means rock. Peter means rock. Okay? So, you know, in Scripture, there are certain easy stories. I'm thinking as a preacher now. <laughs> there are certain stories that are easy to preach. 
and to talk about. Then there are other ones that are per, that are much harder, that fall hard on our ears. They 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 tend to be skipped when you're when it comes time to create sermon series and so forth. They could they tend to be skipped when the lectionary is was put together because they're just hard. Um, behind me, I have a volume called the hard the hard sayings of Jesus, and it's about eight or ten of them, and it's written by a father and a son. The father is um, an ordained minister, and his son is a biblical scholar. And so they each write something about this particular saying. It's kind of a helpful book, I think, but here's a story that, that often falls hard on people. Verse 20, Then Jesus entered a house. Again, Bobby Capernaum. And again a crowd gathered. Well, of course, we know that now. That's no surprise. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. It's just the crowds press and press and press and press. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Of Jesus! For they said he is out of his mind. To the best of our knowledge, Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters did not follow Jesus before his death and resurrection. James, his half-brother, became a leader in the Christian community and became the leader of the Christian community in Jerusalem and was martyred in Jerusalem in the early 60s A.D., And it's easy to ask, well, what's wrong with these people? Don't they understand everything? Well, no, they don't understand everything. They don't understand everything. This, this, this seems what, what the Jesus they knew, and he's running around, and he's in diapers, and he's doing this and doing that. They grew up with, and all of a sudden he bursts on the scene, and now crowds are going to him, and he's angering the Pharisees and the scribes. We know they're already plotting to kill him, and oh, my word. So when the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, He's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Wow. I can I remember a movie I saw a long time ago. Um, it was a kind of a serious movie, actually, um, about a woman who had the power to heal. And there was a scene in it where um, some high schooler had suffered a grievous injury and his friends brought him to this woman in the back of a pickup truck. And she knew she couldn't, she knew she needed, she already knew in the movie that she needed to stay away from this healing stuff because people were, they didn't understand it. They were scared of it. Of course they were. But the boy is going to die. And so she reaches up and she takes his leg in, in her two hands and he is healed and she stops the bleeding. And what's the, what's the view of the preacher in the town? This is what made me think of it. The view of the preacher in the town is what? That she is the devil. That she is possessed by the devil. That she has the devil's power. Not His first reaction is not that this is God's work through her. But that she is the work of the devil. So... Her name was Ruth. 
<laughs> Sit down, Betty. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, but some of his family, they have come and they're saying, oh my, he's out of his mind. The, these respected teachers of the law, these are the real leaders of Israel. The scribes, the Pharisees are learned, they're educated, they're the interpreters of the keepers of the law and the rest of it. They say, oh my word, he's possessed by Beelzebub. This would be one of the demons, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and he began to speak to them in parables. And here's what he famously says. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan poses himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Okay. All right. That seems sensible. Why would Satan drive out Satan's own demons? That doesn't even make any sense. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Okay. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Sure enough. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Period. Paragraph. End quotation. And here we are. Sin. How many questions, Patty, over oh the years goodness, have we gotten? What is, the unpardonable what sin? is this unpardonable, unforgivable sin? So, I've read many learned people's opinions about this in the course of being asked it many times. It's a bit like the demons. That if you really, truly, absolutely know for certain the truth of Jesus and you still deny him, then you have cut yourself off. Then you've cut yourself off. As I put it sometimes, you, just, you will have just shaken your fist at God, at Jesus, all the way to the end. The demons know who Jesus is. There's no question. They know. They know as certainly as I know that my wife, Patty, is sitting across the table from me. Are you still there, Patty? I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right? Wow. Okay. A wiser man once wrote, If you are worried about having committed this unpardonable sin, you have it. What did he mean? If you care enough about Jesus, about your relationship with Jesus, if you care enough that you fear you might have committed this unpardonable sin, you haven't because you care enough. You care something, right? In truth, you know, you could find, if I pulled out 10 commentaries on Mark right here, you're going to find a lot of ink spilled on it. And in the end, it's one of those like, okay, wow. Okay. So for me, I go with the... Um, it's, 
And the unpardonable sin is shaking your fist at God all the way to the end, even when you know what the truth is, but your pride has to win. How about that? And if you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. I like that a lot too. Because that fellow who's going to shake his fist at God all the way to the end, even when he knows what the truth is, because he's just so full of pride, he's going to do it his way, damn it. He doesn't worry a whit about having committed some unpardonable sin. And perhaps has. And that, my friends, is the best I can do with that. And Linda Waldo, I'm so sorry we didn't get um, to your question today because class is pretty much just about over. I think Scott would want to take more time than a few seconds to answer you. Um, I also have some thoughts on that, believe it or not. So I made a screenshot of your question. And how about next Monday when we open up, we'll start out with that question about Mary um, not explaining to Jesus' half-siblings who he really was and what the implications of that would have been. Right. And it's it just may I make one comment. Yes. When Anne Rice wrote her novel of the eight-year-old Jesus, yes, called Out of Egypt, I think she called it. That's kind of a question because it's this family mystery that the grown-ups know, but they're not sharing with Jesus and the children. And she did make in that movie. Um, there was some jealousy going on. Yeah. With the, yeah. With the, so, the so you just got to put yeah. yourself in the position of all kinds of yes. family dynamics and all the rest of it, because we get, we get ink on the page, but these are these are fully blooded people here. So we'll we'll end there, and Patty will get us started off at the right place next week. We'll start with Linda's question yeah. too. Okay. Exactly the right that, place. That's, that's a I question meant. that could be asked actually almost in any. Maybe I'll ask Chat GPT. Oh, goodness. <laughs> in case you don't know, guys, that's one of those uh, computer-generated answers. Yeah, it would be yeah, fun the to AI, see. AI, yeah. Yes. AI. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yep. All right, my love. Are you going to pray us out of here? I am. Okay. Alrighty. Thanks, Very guys, for being with us. I'm sorry I had to run out a few times, but we... Crazy day it today. It was kind of crazy, and the travel agent people needed my input on some stuff. Okay. So let's close for today. Hopefully some of you can be with us tomorrow. Again, 12 o'clock, 1 Samuel, great stories, really great stories. And if you can't be in person at St. Andrew and Piro Hall, we hope to see you online. All righty, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to get together today and study this Gospel of Mark. We get to hear just story after story about the amazing things that our Lord and Savior did. And um, it is hard for us to understand, Lord, sometimes why, how people can see this happening right in front of them, and, and yet they still had so many doubts. And, um, you know, it makes us all wonder how we, we would react if, if this was something that was happening in 2023 with our neighbor or our nephew or our grandchild. Lord, it's, it's easy for us to put um, a little bit of shame on, on those first first um, Jews to be around Jesus, but, but we know it's not as easy as that. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to keep this group together. Hold us close, Lord, as we share in your word each week. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us healthy and safe. We pray, God, that for our families and friends too. And we pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives to help us make 
good choices, good decisions, God, every day, and to help us to be a little less, little less afraid, God, and and more kind of out there to take a chance and to and to speak about you, God, where wherever we possibly can, Lord. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Well, adios. Adios. Guys. Adios, muchachos. Bye. <laughs> Bye.